Hi, Julie here, thanking you for stopping by this fantasy podcast from Third Flatiron in Boulder, Colorado. We've got a Halloween treat for you this time, although this story would be great any time of year. It's called Across the Sticks of Norway by Jacob M. Lambert. Jacob lives in Alabama, where he teaches English composition and very shortly will receive his Master of Arts degree. Jacob has a short story titled The Julius Directive out in Flame Tree Publishing's recent publication, Science Fiction Short Stories. To find out more about his work, see the interview posted along with this podcast. Third Flatiron is pleased to produce this dark fantasy tale, which first appeared in our fall-winter anthology, Ain't Superstitious. For more podcasts from Third Flatiron, check out our website at thirdflatiron.com and subscribe to our feed. And now, here's Across the Sticks of Norway, read by Keeley Rue. Across the Sticks of Norway by Jacob M. Lambert It was haunted. He let his gaze shift upward to the sky where the phosphorescent neon green hues of the aurora borealis seemed to flow in ghastly silence. The night was cold, and as the wind beat against his copper skin, numbing both his lips and his cheeks, static filled his ears. And in that static, the gnarled voice of his grandfather. Only whistle if you're ready. Sighing, Michael lowered his gaze back to the vehicle. It was haunted. It had taken him three days to reach this point, a day on the boat, then another on the plane, and finally, by taxi, the road. The latter started as an endless, meandering rectangle the color of scorched earth. It eventually forked, then straightened, then forked again, until becoming a dirt road. Like the cancer metastasizing in his abdomen, the road slowly crept along, invading small towns, then branching outward, infecting others. The taxi didn't reach the car rental place until four in the afternoon. Svalbard, Norway time, and it was 4.30 before an old woman with a desiccated, liver-spotted face approached the jaundiced service desk, asking him if he needed help. Yes, I need a car, Michael said. The woman nodded, offered a smile, and disappeared through a beaded walkway, leaving him puzzled, half-leaning over the counter. Breathing in an eye-watering mixture of turpentine and stale coffee, Michael's gaze shifted from the counter over to a small room on the left, a waiting room, equipped with white plastic chairs and a black-and-white television set. Unsatisfied, he turned and faced the large glass window behind him. He could see the adjacent town of Longyearbyen, 300 yards away from the rental store. The store sat on top of a slope, and Michael could only make out the arched roofs of the town's houses below, and the massive snow bowl that enclosed them. He tried bending at the knees so he could see Mount Hjortfelt in the background, but two things obstructed his vision, the large pink letters written across the glass, and, second, a man with long, stringy gray hair peering back at him. "'You need a car?' the man said, his English accented, but nonetheless clear. After placing his long black hair into a ponytail and raising the hood of his wool jacket, Michael nodded. "'If it's not too much trouble, only need it for a couple hours. "'Where are you headed?' 
He'd hoped he wouldn't have to answer this question, but here it was, floating like a black cloud between them. I'm here to cross out the last item on my bucket list, sir, to see the northern lights, and blow my brains out on the mountain. But don't worry, I won't get blood in the upholstery, that I promise. Just to see the lights. I've always wanted to see them, ever since I was little. You picked the perfect time, too, the man replied, then motioned for Michael to follow him around the corner. November's the best time. February's good, too, but nothing like now. You headed to the mountains for a better view, I imagine? Yes, sir. Well, I hope you aren't expecting nothing fancy, because all I have is this, the man said, pointing in the direction of a red car covered in rust, dents, and scratches. The back two tires were almost flat, and the headlamps resembled calcified window panes, with large cracks running through both. Sudden warmth spread over Michael's scalp, and he could feel his heart thumping inside his ears, a pulsating sensation that made his head heavy. I asked for a Honda Civic. The travel agent said you had a Honda? Who? No Honda here. Only this. I don't remember his name, but he said, There's only my wife and I, and we have only two cars, this one, which we bought in an auction, and our personal vehicle. But if you are going to take this one, I must show you something. Please, follow me. Exasperated and freezing, Michael rounded the building, walked to where the man stood on the right side of the car, and hovered over him. See this stain here, he said, pointing to a massive red splotch on the back seat's upholstery. I thought I should tell you there's blood on the seats and floor back here. Nothing bad happened, but I just thought I'd tell you. If you don't mind, don't try to clean it out, okay? I'd rather you left it alone. Nothing bad happened. The words played and replayed in his mind, each reiteration somehow sounding more and more ridiculous. Don't try to clean it out, okay? Was this really happening, Michael thought? Or was this another fever dream, like back on the boat, where he'd thought he'd heard someone screaming in the water? The freezing wind and pain in his stomach told him that he wasn't dreaming, but the eerie, drone-like quality of the man's voice suggested a nightmare and the content of that voice only verified the possibility of the latter. If it wasn't a dream, though he wished that it was, even a terrifying one, then this was the moment the man would brandish a knife, turn around, and... So, this all right? Coughing into his palm, Michael shook his head. It'll have to do. How long before the sun goes down here? An hour, hour and a half at most. All right. How much? Michael reached into his pocket and removed his wallet. The man frowned, making him look like a sun-bleached raisin, and shrugged. Ten dollars. American. Really? He shrugged again. Okay, and American's all I have, he replied, placing the money in the man's upturned, steady hand. Remember what I said. Please, leave the stain alone. You don't need to fill up the gas, either. I'll have my wife do that later. No problem, Michael said, taking the keys and starting the car, cranking it on the first turn, something that surprised him enough to make him smile. He then climbed in and shut the door, but before he could pull away, the man knocked at the window. One more thing. My name's Kent, like Clark Kent. If you break down, which I'm sure you won't, 
You just give me a call. You have a phone? I got a disposable one when I came into town. Kent placed his hands on his narrow hips and arched his back, stretching. Good. My number's on the registration. Call me if you need help. You shouldn't, but that car's never gone up to the mountains. It will make it, but just keep me in mind if you need help. For the third time that evening, Michael nodded. And don't mess with that stain. It adds character. Halfway up the mountain, the Geo lookalike started overheating. Cursing the vehicle and slamming on the steering wheel offered nothing more than a headache and throbbing palm. But Michael continued pressing the gas anyway, though he could feel the frame of the car vibrating under his feet, making his heart flutter. Once he'd reached flat ground, however, stress on the vehicle abated enough for the temperature gauge to rest slightly under the large H. It wasn't smoking, but he could hear sizzling, like sausage casing right before it snapped. He turned on the radio, hoping to drown out the sound, but the only thing that came through the buzzing side speakers was static, static and garbled laughter mixed with static. Next he rolled down the windows, but the mountain air instantly numbed his face, forcing him to... The final shudder, the Geo lookalike started smoking. Thank God I slowed down, he thought, veering to the right, to the side of the road. Michael parked the car, opened the door, and stepped out into the icy mountain air. As he walked to the hood, though he didn't know what for, he was tribal police out of Michigan, not a mechanic. He caught a glimpse of the sky beyond, just over the next hill. A brilliant luminescence painted the landscape in an ethereal green, as if the above aurora were greedy, intertwined souls reflecting in a massive mirror, hoping to duplicate itself. It's more beautiful than I thought, Michael said, vaguely aware of the radio's static gaining volume behind him. He took a step forward, and then another, then glanced over at the car one more time before deciding he'd walk. As he ventured away, however, there was a loud pop, like several balloons exploding at once, and a voice, deep and incredulous, shouting at his back, cutting through the previous static. All you have to do is give it a minute, son. Give it a chance to cool down. He didn't see anything, and the static, that was now deafening, had come back, heart beating rapidly everywhere but his chest. Michael approached the vehicle on knees held together with gelatin and squinted, half drawn to the aurora, half to the car. Another fever dream. Here? In the middle of nowhere? At least, there's no pain. There isn't yet. But it won't last. Trust me, the voice said again, in between bursts of static from the radio, as if tuning itself. Now I'm hearing voices in the radio. Great. One more thing. Will you just get in the damn car and get us closer to the lights? We've been waiting years for this, and you ain't taken that away. We? Yes, we. And you ain't crazy. I'm speaking through the radio, like that movie where the son talks to his dad in the past. Yeah, like the movie. But I ain't your daddy, and you ain't my son, and this most definitely ain't the past. Now come on, let's get moving. Michael felt his jaw drop. 
And in that same moment he thought of the laughter he'd heard in the static only a few minutes ago. It wasn't the radio, but it was, just not a station or anything. If it helps, just think of me as the car's frequency. Can you dig that? If not, try something else. Think of it as memory foam, and I, like everyone else here, happen to leave my impression on it. That help you some? Michael shook his head. All right, all right. We'll figure it out when we get there, deal? The voice said, and then faded, leaving behind the same ear-splitting static. Instead of question it, though he couldn't formulate a logical sentence if he tried, Michael turned to the Geo lookalike and, after placing it in drive, floored the gas pedal. The car lurched forward, stalled, and caught traction, the tires producing massive plumes of smoke as they tore into the pavement, sending sediment and energetic squeals into the darkness. "'Where do I go?' Michael said, gripping the steering wheel and squinting through the dirty windshield. Nothing. Only static. Hello? Again, nothing. Then, as the aurora's full breadth filled his vision, the static cleared. Up the hill, a little closer, then stop at the top, underneath it, and open all the doors so we can finally get out of this damn car. Once he reached the summit, Michael did exactly that. And when he'd finished... He stepped away from the vehicle, far enough that he could see both the aurora and the car. It was haunted. He let his gaze shift upward to the sky where the phosphorescent neon green hues of the aurora borealis seemed to flow in ghastly silence. The night was cold, and as the wind beat against his copper skin, numbing both his lips and cheeks, static filled his ears. And in that static, the gnarled voice of his grandfather, only whistle if you're ready. Sighing, Michael lowered his gaze back to the vehicle. It was haunted. All four doors of the red Dodge look-alike remained open, light from the interior spilling out into the darkened, isolated road, music now blaring from the radio, a dissonant classical tune. Michael could now see the people through the dirty windshield, their shapes flickering in and out of focus like the batteries of a dying hologram. Then they were out, exiting the Nottageo, dozens of them into the street, where they circled the car, their eyes fixed on Michael. Every one of them wide-eyed and exuding an expectant smile. "'Only when you're ready, son,' the voice said. He wore tattered blue jeans, a white shirt, and had a long, uneven beard. A huge serpentine laceration snaked along his right thigh, removing any equivocality of where he had last sat in the vehicle. Again, his grandfather's words, The light will take you, Michael, but only ask it when you know the time's right. Our people always know. Only whistle when you're ready. Warm tears streaming down his numb cheeks, Michael returned the smile of those gathering around the Geo look-alike. And a few moments after that, he, averting his attention to the aurora, took a deep breath, pressed his lips together, and blew between them. 
even into the early hours of the next morning, one could still hear the resounding high-pitched whistle coming from somewhere near Mount Hjortfelt, but most passed it off as a ringing in their ears, while others, the more superstitious, knew it involved the northern lights. Clark, like Clark Kent, heard it too, and he couldn't help but smile. Thanks for listening to this podcast from thirdflatiron.com. Original music by Disco Volante. Sound production was by Andrew Cairns.